Atkinson behind the net. Trying to stay strong on the puck. Skates back to it. Good body there from Austin Matthews. Kane hangs on to it. Kane scores! It's second of the night. Welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett. February 23rd, 2023, Season 13, Episode 4 on the program today from The Athletic. Eamon Brennan is joining us to talk about college basketball. And former Buffalo Sabres PR extraordinaire turned author Kevin Snow will join us to talk about his book club book of the month entry, The Science of Hockey. Uh, also on the show today, first things first, one last thing, and a huge update in the book club. Um, looking forward to the show today. Two debuts. Um, Iman and Kevin are new to the show. Last week on the podcast, uh, we also had some debuts. Um, it's been a really good season, actually, for debuts in general. Uh, Gabriel Marcati uh, was a debut. Uh, Chris Parker was a debut, even though he appeared with with uh, Mike Shope. Uh, it was his first time uh, on the show. Uh, Alex Faust was a first-timer, which was great. Mark Hoti, like I said, and Chris Parker, and then the two guests today. So a fair amount of debuts already in season number 13. I like to make the ratio 60-40, 60 returning, 40% new. You don't like to lean too much on your... Your people, you don't want people to say, oh, do I need, really need to hear SL Price on the sportscasters again? Um, but also, on the flip side, people are like, oh, great, SL Price is on the sportscasters again. They're great together. So hopefully it's usually more of that than the other. Uh, but Amon is going to join us today for the annual, okay, football's over. It's almost time for me to figure out my brackets, what the hell's going on in college basketball spot. He'll join us and catch us up, and uh, Kevin will talk about his career with the Sabres. He had a really interesting story about her, where he was and what he was doing on July 1st, 2007. All right, first things first, uh, speaking of the Sabres, I really want to love the 2023 Sabres. They've done what I asked them to do, right? Going into the season, if you remember last season when they were on their eight-game losing streak, last podcast season, when the Sabres were on their eight-game losing streak in this NHL season, I had Greg Wyshynski on, and I said, all I want from this team is to play meaningful games in 2023, make it important in March and April, and, and they've done that, right? So that's the good news, and, and they score a lot of goals. They're fun to watch. They're a likable group. They they're all they all want to be here. They love being Buffalo Sabres. Uh, they're very endearing in many ways. Two huge strikes against them. The first one, was they let that piss pot Jack Eichel come back into our building and get a hat trick. And now, for their second strike, Ryan O'Reilly comes back with Toronto, has two goals before anyone's even sat down and finishes off the hat trick in the third period. 
kind of the two biggest enemies of Sabres hockey in the last 10 years. You let them both come in and get hat-tricks in the building. That's a tough, a tough pill to swallow. That Leafs game was a disaster. I had it turned off by 745. I just wasn't going to sit there and watch that garbage. Uh, we'll see where they stand. They still have a lot of games in hand. They're still very much in the race for the wild card. That's what we were hoping for uh, this season as Sabres fans. And let's see if they can find their way into the tournament. Be great if they could. Uh, speaking of tournaments, Italy's off to a hot start in Europe. Uh, the Serie A teams have been fantastic. AC Milan, Inter Milan, and Napoli all won the first leg games of their two-game aggregate legs in the round of 16 of Champions League. Um, also, Juventus and Roma advanced in the Europa League, and uh, Florentina and Lazio also advanced in their the third level of Europe football. So all the Italian teams have advanced, doing very well, either advanced or doing very well in their leg. We'll find out who... Juventus and Roma will play tomorrow in the round of 16 of Europa League. Juventus lost all those points and potentially their spot in Europe. But if they can find a way to win the Europa League, that comes with a spot in Champions League next year. So we'll see if they can pull off that miracle. And on the flip side of that, England is not doing great, right? And not doing great at all. They either have lost all their first legs of Champions League or their Manchester City who tied. Uh, one to one, so not a great. And Liverpool absolutely smoked uh, at home, five to two, by Real Madrid, who should be able to uh, knock England, England's Liverpool out of the Champions League this year. Chelsea not going to win Champions League this year. Um, I think Man City's really their only shot at it. So let's hope that doesn't happen. Baseball season is back, and you know how I know for sure. Baseball season is back. Uh, Mike Soroka is injured. Uh, the Braves pitcher who once showed so much promise and dominance and looked like he'd be the, the next Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin or John Smoltz until he tore his Achilles tendon and then tore it again and then had arm fatigue and hasn't really pitched in two years while well, he's injured at spring training again with some kind of hamstring injury. I'm not sure Mike Soroka ever pitches a meaningful game in the major leagues again. We'll see. Uh, as we speak right now, the New York Rangers have scratched two players tonight for trade purposes. And the rumor is uh, some New York writers are reporting that that trade will be Patrick Kane and that Patrick Kane will be a Ranger. Uh, Jonathan Taves also announced this weekend that he's suffering from long COVID and some immune deficiency that he has, and he's shutting it down right now. Uh, chances are Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane have played their last games together as Blackhawks. It's questionable whether Jonathan Taves will ever play again. So he may have played his last game as a Blackhawk. And Patrick Kane, who's had a hat-trick and a two-goal game in the last couple and has scored seven goals in the last however many versus seven in the first however many, is on a tear right now and could be in New York before this podcast is even posted, um, which would mean they would get Tarasenko and Kane um, they're certainly stacking the deck to make a run. Uh, Chris Jury's doing a great job there. All right, last thing before we get into the interviews. Can you believe, it? speaking of the Rangers, can you believe that there's still sportscasters calling games in closets on in 
National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, NBA, the pro sports leagues in this country should be ashamed of themselves if they're still broadcasting games to save money in closets. We talked to Alex Faust about it. They're not doing it in his broadcast anymore. And if you listen to that interview last episode, you'll hear why announcers hate it so much. It's horrible for viewers, and it's minor league garbage. It's horrible, and I can't believe they're still doing it. And the Rangers are the latest team to be called out for it as they didn't send their announcers on the Rangers' latest West Coast road trip. A New York City original six franchise like the New York Rangers cannot have their announcers in closets. It's embarrassing, embarrassing, embarrassing to the league, uh, and it needs to, it needs to change. Um, I'm calling it out. And I'm going to keep calling out until nobody's doing it anymore. It's ridic- ridiculous, and it's horrible for hockey because you can't see the backside official. You can't see when maybe players change for a delayed penalty. You can't tell when the goalie's pulled. It's it's really bad. Uh, the sound and the play never seem to be in sync. Uh, it's a minor league crap that started because of the pandemic. And now teams who want to be cheap have taken advantage. And it's garbage. And I hate it. All right, let's get the show going. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be here with Iman Brennan. Now, I worked really hard to find out how you said his name. And I thought it was Amon, and I was listening to pr- some pronunciations, and everyone was saying Amon, Amon. And when I called him, I said, "Hey, Amon," and he said, "Hey," and I said, "Is that right?" And he's like, "Oh, actually, it's Iman." And I was like, "Oh, really?" He's like, "Yeah, you, you're saying it the way it should be said, but my parents gave up, and I just go by Iman." So it's Iman Brennan from the Athletic. We're going to talk college hoops with him. Kevin Snow will be on later. Let's take a break now. We'll get come back with Iman. Let's find out who's going to win the brackets the NCAA tournament, what's going on with Duke and North Carolina and Kentucky. Are they even going to make it? Uh, And let's find out who the stars are in college basketball this year as well. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Our first guest today writes about college basketball for The Athletic. He also spent eight years writing about the sport for ESPN. He spent some time at Yahoo and SB Nation, and he's making his debut on the Sportscasters today. An Indiana University graduate, a warm welcome to Iman Brennan. Hey, Iman, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? All right. First question, most important. Who is going to win the Champions League, and why is it Napoli? <laughs> yeah, uh, it may it may be. Um, I don't know. Just uh, I, I'll I'll just naturally assume it's going to be Madrid. Um, <laughs> as an Arsenal fan, selfishly, I would like for it to be Manchester City. I would like for them to go really deep into the competition, be really more invested. You know, have Pep Guardiola more invested. Right, wear them out in that. for the league. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just kind of like if they if we win the league too, that's great. If not, you know, we really want to win the Champions League. We're bored of winning the league. So, um, <laughs> I can us see little that. little old Arsenal can get some uh so some um respite from these guys. I don't have a club. I'm a huge Italian national team fan. Oh, nice. So, um what happened was after the Euros, for my whole life, I just watched the Euros and the World Cup every 4 years. 
and was fine yeah. with that. And, you know, um, what happened was the last Euros was right after the pandemic, I guess. And I was kind of out with sports. I, I don't know what happened to me, but during the pandemic, the sports went away and I let them and it was hard to bring them back. You yeah. know what I mean? I was just, I couldn't deal with the empty arenas and, you know, the fights that we were, ha- the cultural fights around the games coming back and stuff were exhausting. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until Italy uh, won the Euros and that journey that I kind of got the bug back. And because of it, I wanted to follow those guys to their clubs. And I learned about club soccer a lot in the last two years. Um. And part of that journey has led me to Arsenal in a way now that Jorginho is there, who I have a, a love-hate relationship with. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think he was burned the other day. That, should be, that shouldn't be that should be an old goal. That one should be a goal, I think. I don't know what you think. Um, yeah, he absolutely, absolutely smashed it regardless yeah. of how it actually, that actually should, went. That should be a goal. I mean, come on. It didn't hit. Yeah. It's not like a defender slid and kicked it in. You know what I mean? It went in because of his kick. And it, you know. <laughs> Hit the goalie in the back. I don't know. I'm a hockey yeah. guy, and to me, that's a great way to score a goal every time. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I knew yeah, you I mean, were a soccer guy coming in, so I wanted to ask you at least one or two on that real quick. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I mean, I, I identify with your um, stuff about the pandemic era of sports and stuff. For a while, it was just like, oh, you know. Yeah, it's I, so hard I, to get I back. Traumatic memories of watching like old games on the big 10 network. Cause that was the only thing that was available. And we were like turning content, trying to, you know, write, right. Pretend tournament brackets that never happened and stuff just sort of like, cause we thought, you know, the world was ending. Um, and then once the game started again, it was like awesome. But then a year later or whenever it was, when fans finally got back in the building, you're like, okay, this is way better. Right. <laughs> this, is, this is what it, you forgot to be. how much better yeah. it is to, to have a full stadium full of screaming people, as opposed to just people playing quietly in a, in an empty arena. What was it like as a college basketball writer, just in terms of the timing? Because I mean, they literally pulled teams off of conference championship or conference tournament games. I don't know if it was the championship. I remember the ACC tournament, right? They were playing or whatever. Yeah. And maybe Florida State came out. Someone else didn't. I don't remember exactly, but I got to think around that time, you're like preparing for the busiest time of the year, whatever that means for you, you know, getting ready for the tournaments. All of a sudden, you know, 100 million extra people are watching, whatever, and then all gone like that, like. I don't know. Was it different yeah. based on what you did? Maybe then that, uh, maybe my experience as a non-college basketball writer. Yeah, no, it was. It was. Um, I was in ACC. Uh, I was in Greensboro for the ACC tournament, and I remember going. I mean, I remember going to Virginia's last game of that season in Charlottesville the, the Saturday before, thinking like, eh, "Should we be doing this? I'm not really sure we should be doing this." Um, like in a full arena of Virginia fans. Um, and then going to the ACC tournament, not knowing what was going to go on. But I went, I got there Wednesday night um, and went and got my press pass early just because I figured it was going to get weird at some point. Um, and I wanted to be able to get in the building the next day. And so, yeah, no, the, the, I got there early on that Thursday and it was just like, um, you know, everyone probably watching on TV. It was very weird team, you know, Florida State came out. Got ready to play. I got remember that. The champion. 
you know, uh, and, and, you know, within an hour or two, I was on a flight home, um, back to DC and that was the last time I was in an airport for like two years or whatever. Um, Wild. yeah, very, very profoundly strange. And obviously canceling the tournament that year, like we were freaked out as college basketball writers. Like we're like, you know, what are we going to do here? This is like, you know, our entire year builds up to that. <laughs> right. And for the athletic, we're trying to sell subscriptions, particularly at the time you're like really trying to push for that. And, um, keeping people on board was like a big focus that we were, you know, pretty successful with, but scared of those first few days for sure. Yeah. I remember John Feinstein had a book out about March madness and yeah. you know, I had him on and he's like, look at, I, I planned for two years to release this, you know, for this tournament and there's no, yeah. t- there's no tournament, you know, it was like his whole life for two years or whatever was built around that tournament existing and it didn't. And, you know, maybe John, maybe the sports jurors, maybe I soldiered on, but then you think about the cities that prepared for two years for the tournament to be there oh, yeah. and all those things kind of got lost in the shuffle, maybe a little bit, just a crazy time that I guess we'll never forget, you know, but yeah, yep. They are playing now, which is good. And, uh, I feel like, and you can agree or disagree that this is the time where maybe your phone starts to ring a little bit more. Friends text more football is over. And people have said, now what? And college basketball is usually one of the first what's because as we get closer to March, the beloved tournament that, you know, I'm not a huge basketball guy, but I love the NCAA tournament, right? You know, more than anything that has to do with basketball otherwise, you know, yeah. I love the NCAA tournament. So do you, do you get that feeling as well that this is the time of year where the sport goes from playing in the shadows to playing in the spotlights? Yeah, for sure. I mean... It's um, it's an every year sort of acceleration. Obviously, you get into um, January conference play, and things start being a little bit less of a novelty, and the schedule is more regular. And then, yeah, once the Super Bowl is over, people start to turn their attentions more toward who's going to be in the tournament. Um, that sort of national, high level view of college hoops. We're obviously in the nitty gritty. Um, on a sort of day-to-day basis, but I do uh, have a fair amount of friends and, you know, family and just kind of, I like to try and be pretty aware of the fact that like you, you get some parochialism with some college basketball people sometimes where it's like, sometimes I think they lose sight that like, it isn't the biggest deal in the world and, you know, ratings are what they are relative to like the NFL or whatever you kind of have to be cognizant of that and like where people's um, awareness level is and kind of try and meet them halfway sometimes. Um, but uh, yet yeah, it's, it's a super exciting time. Um, everything ramps up. And then once, yeah, particularly once you get to the tournament, you feel like everybody's paying attention. Everybody's on board. Um, those, those first few weeks are just like electric in terms of being out at tournament sites, covering yeah. the games, um, all of the cultural stuff that goes on around it. You do feel that when you're actually out of games covering it. It's not just, um, you don't feel like you're in your, your bubble. It's like, it's a huge deal for wherever you are in that city. And, um, uh, you know, and, and people coming out of the woodwork to ask you for bracket advice, even though your bracket advice is terrible and has (laughs) never helped anyone. Um, it's all of that stuff and it's super fun and, and the ramp up to it 
is great. And then for me, it's really bittersweet every every year. Like the the day of the national title game, obviously those games are always late at night. You know, they start at like nine thirty yeah. on East Coast time, or whatever. And I always wake up kind of sad that day because it's like it's exciting, but then I know. You know, I'm going to fly home the next morning. I'm packing my stuff. Like, the season is over. And it's a very bittersweet sort of thing. Like, I'm looking forward to vacation or whatever. But that electric adrenaline rush of three weeks in the NCAA tournament goes away. And you're, like, back to reality afterwards. So, it's a it's an emotional it's an emotional journey, a college basketball season. But it's very, very fun. So, my guess, and you can disagree with me. I, if, you, if, I, if I need to be disagreed with, I wouldn't be offended. But my guess is many people are turning to the sport and wondering where is North Carolina? Where is Duke? Where is Kentucky? Where are these blue bloods that usually are in these lists of top 25 of power rankings of uh, bracketology one seeds. I don't even see them in the 16 seeds. Where are these blue bloods? Hey, wasn't North Carolina the preseason number one? What happened to these guys? Is that the thing you're getting most from the people who are, turning the page from football to college basketball? Yeah, well, I mean, all three of them are their own unique stories. I think Duke is probably the most stable, even though they're the one with the new new head coach, coach, right? Obviously, Coach K retired, um, handed the program off to John Shire, who's a young first-year head coach. I think he's well-regarded in the game, learning on the job, um, seems to be uh, seems to be pretty good, but they, you know they've had a they, they have a very young team, lots of freshmen. You know they they kind of pursued the the thing they've been doing for the last ten years. Which actually, Shire um, to my colleague Dan O'Neill said that they're probably going to swerve from a little bit, which was recruiting you know all of the best freshmen in the country and trying to put together a team on short notice. I think they're going to try and get a little bit older, stay a little bit older, um, which is kind of the trend in the sport more broadly now. Um, but anyway, you know, Duke has, is really young. They've had a lot of injuries throughout the season. It's taken them a long time to get up to speed and to get their guard play where they need it to be. Um, but they're, in, they're, you know, they're on the right track. They're like looking like a five or six seed, which relative to, you know, coach K's tenure is like kind of a disaster for Duke, but you know, relative to, where they were earlier in the year and their youth and, you know, whatever, it kind of won't matter if they come together um, the way they're, they're kind of been trending like they will. They'll be a dangerous team come March. I mean, Carolina and Kentucky are their own. And, and hold on. Message. I think for Duke, that'd be a great season the first year post-Coach K, right? Like, you, I would think yeah. you'd take that. Like, cause, because the year after, look, I'm a huge Saints fan, right? Like, that's my number one team. The year after, Drew Brees was not pretty. You know what I mean? Like, that... To me, that, right. that would be de- a decent landing post-Coach K. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, not at all. I, I, you're, you're right. I think um, there was always going to be a little bit of a come down. It just depended on, you know, I, there was definitely hope that, that Shire and this, you know, this crazy good recruiting class would be enough to, to head that off. But, um, you know, people forget how good Coach K was at his job. <laughs> He's right. extremely, extremely good every single year they were you know, one or a two or, or God forbid, a three seed and hunting a national title. And, um, and you know, Shire may, Shire may get there, but yeah. it would be pretty incredible if he's also one of the best coaches of, of all time um, right away. Uh, the odds on that are pretty, pretty miraculous. But, um, yeah, I mean, and Carolina and Kentucky are kind of their own deal. I mean, Kentucky, you know, 
their fans could tell you that uh, they are um, disappointing for a variety of reasons, but I think most fans would probably put it on um, on John Calipari's offensive system not being particularly suited to modern basketball. A lot of long twos, not a lot of threes. Um, still really reliant on offensive rebounding. Oscar Shibwe is still a really good player, but he hasn't hit the level that he was at last season when he was setting rebounding records, basically every time he touched the floor, um, has really struggled defensively, and teams have figured that out. They're not as good defensively as they were last year. Um, they don't have as much cover for him in pick-and-roll situations, and so they have been – there's talent there, and Kaysom Wallace, uh, their freshman guard, is really coming on strong down the stretch. I think they've kind of figured out their lineups with him. And again, I think they have enough talent to be really dangerous in March. Um, but they've struggled for much of the season. So, you know, they're, 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 I don't think they're on the bubble anymore, but they're going to be potentially a double digit seed and um, facing a pretty strong headwind wherever they end up in the bracket. And then, yeah, Carolina is, is crazy. I mean, look, really they, crazy, they, really crazy. They were probably, they were probably overrated to come into the season. That's probably fair. I mean, I think even, I, I traditionally try and, stay pretty grounded with like a team that was pretty mediocre for much of the year last year and then gets really hot down the stretch made the run yeah. like made it makes it makes a crazy tournament run but you you look back and they weren't just good for three weeks in the tournament they were good for like two months you know they, they, they really figured it out last year um and and their you know the tournament run was was sort of riding the tail end of that but um you know they they the, the transition from Brady Manick to Pete Nance as their sort of like stretch four shooter has not worked out at all. Um, Nance, they got as a transfer from Northwestern on paper, made a lot of sense, did a lot of the same things as Manick, but it just hasn't worked in the same way. Caleb Love's having a pretty atrocious season scoring, has just shot the ball way too much, taken a lot of bad shots. I think team morale, for whatever reason, has not been where you would expect it to be. Um, and so, yeah, they, they've just drifted. Like it's, it's not even one or two tactical things that you could like kind of what I was mentioning with Kentucky, like, Oh, okay. Sure. Wallace is coming along strong. And like, they haven't guarded really well, but I think they figured out their best lineup. It's like, they just look aimless a lot of the times and a, a lot of time on both ends of the floor. Um, and they're not a tournament team, you know, they, they're a preseason number one, a couple minutes away from winning a national title last year, who's almost certainly not going to make the tournament unless they go on a crazy run in the ACC tournament at this point. And it's just, it's, it's beyond like at some point our, our Duke UNC writer, Brendan Marks will, will have that piece probably. And they'll have some deep dive that, you know, I don't even yeah, know any happened, details right? of right now yeah. that will explain like yeah. what went wrong. But, yeah. but right now it's like, it, all I know is it's more than any one given thing. It's just kind of a mess from top to bottom. Has the AP preseason number one ever not made the tournament? Uh, I would need to double check that, but I think so. I think okay. maybe Kentucky with Nerlens Noel. I would have to. I would have okay. to double check that. All right, not as I far think back that as year I where where Nerlens Noel got hurt, um, and they ended up going to the NIT. They might have been preseason number one, um, but. Yeah, I mean, in any case, it's not something that happens very, very frequently. Um, and it's, uh, you know, to be a preseason AP number one, again, to bring four guys back from a, from a, you know, four starters back from a five-man core that nearly won the national title and to be where they are right now is, like, astounding. Wild. I just did a quick Google, and so we'll take that for what it's worth. Uh, and it's referencing 
an article on Yahoo from this year. It says every preseason number one has made the tournament since the field expanded to 64 and 85. There you go. So whatever their research is, we'll just pretend to trust it, I guess. Jeff Eisenberg, I don't know if you know him. I don't. Oh, yeah, no, Jeff, yeah, okay. that, that, will, that will be true. All yep. right, so we'll believe him. Uh, the opposite, I think, is also true, right? If you're looking at the top of your power rankings, we'll use that as our source, Houston? You know, Alabama? But this is football? No. Um, Purdue? You know, uh, Houston, I know, has been building with uh, Calvin Sampson, uh, and it, um, who was at Oklahoma in a Final Four, lost to Indiana, where he then went. And then also, he was now at Houston. So, let's start with them. Uh, is this the culmination of a build, kind of? Is this their... You know their year kind of a thing. What what are we looking at with Houston? Yeah, I mean, so he's gotten that program in in the matter of five or six seasons now to be a national. He plays on the edges, right, Calvin Sampson? He's a little questionable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he so he 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 got in trouble at Indiana for yeah. things that are now legal, right? Like too many phone calls, texting, text too many messages. texts, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, dumb stuff back in a very different era of NCAA rules enforcement. Sure, um, but was nonetheless illegal at the time. He knew that, and he lied about it or whatever. You know, it's like it's right. not like he didn't break the rules or whatever, kind of knowingly. It's it feels silly in retrospect, but like at the time, it was like, dude, what are you doing? But um, that he, he went away. He went to um, be an assistant coach in the NBA for Greg Popovich for the Spurs for a number of years. Um, kind of like, I don't know, his like time in the wilderness training with Ra's al Ghul, like in the Batman Begins, uh, you know, set up, um, like came back just an absolute, like was already a, an elite coach, but came back like much more adaptable, much better tactically, particularly on the offensive end than I think he would even acknowledge he ever was um, in his days at at Oklahoma or Indiana um, earlier in his career. And just like totally 100% locked in on culture and program building in a way that is like kind of scary sometimes. Like you just see him with his kids and they are like, so 100% bought into how they do things there, um, what's required, the level of work and um, uh, sort of buy-in that he gets. And now, you know, th- th- so he's gotten that for, for years now, and they've gotten good, you know, they, they gradually build to where they're really good in the season. I mean, last year was a perfect example. They lost their best player, Marcus Sasser, who's currently also their best player to a season-ending injury. And I'm like, okay, Houston's going to go away for a while. And instead, they just got better. Um, he just elevated a couple different guys, started playing differently, and they just got better. And they do that every year now. And this year, you know, they have a five-star freshman, Jairus Walker, who is like a top-five pick, um, you know, projected in, the, in this summer's draft. And so he's adding like five-star talent into his mix of slightly off-the-radar, tough kids who want to buy into the culture. And like now he's sprinkling in some some elite-level talent. So they're, they're, to me, the best – you know, if you're like, it's obvious because they're ranked number one on, or in almost every poll. But like, they're the team with the fewest flaws that I can see. Mm-hmm. Um, Twenty-three in terms of like, yeah. they, they guard extremely well. They're great defensively. They're old. They have good guard play. They're they have, <coughs> pardon me, 
like I said, top level talent. They have all the kind of things that when you're looking at NCAA tournament teams and thinking like, where are they going to have a hiccup? Um, they make a lot of sense. And so they're the team with the fewest sort of flaws in a team where in a year where there's, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten relatively equal teams. I think Houston is the one I keep coming back to as as the place where you would poke the fewest holes in terms of, of profile for like a team you'd pick to win the national title in your bracket. Well, I'm glad Calvin's having more success with his five stars at Houston than he did at OU with guys like Scotty Reynolds. Um my friend played OU football, so we watch a lot of OU sports. And I do very much remember his son, Kellen, coming off the bench in the 50-point blowout games, sinking threes, and the whole place just going nuts for yeah. Kellen Sampson. So we'll see if Kelvin can get a title and then maybe leave the program to Kellen. I mean, and see look, that. I went I went yeah. to Indiana. I was there for, you know, I was the uh, student paper reporter for his first season at Indiana. Mm. And it is still a fun like alternate history of, you know, what if those NCAA rules what didn't if? exist? Yeah, would he still if? be at Indiana? Yeah. Most likely he would be, and he'd probably have a national title or, or maybe two by now, just, you know, looking at what he's done at Houston. Maybe he's, maybe he wouldn't have gotten there. Maybe he would have made a different mistake along the way. Like who knows, but it is something Indiana fans definitely thinking about watching him build this, like, right. Incredible program out of nothing. At he Houston. is great. Like, and I, I think he is a, a good man. I'm rooting for, Calvin Sampson, you know what I mean, as an OU fan or whatever. I'm rooting yeah. for him. And, and it's interesting to hear you talk about how tactically he's become better, too, because I think back to a few times where I thought maybe he got out coached. Like when Syracuse won it all, they kind of swept the Big 12, right, that one year. Um, and that was the year, I, you know, where, um, where uh, my man, uh, I can't think of his name right now, the guard. It's like my favorite OU basketball player of all time. I can't think of his name right now. But um, – Anyway, it was his team, his senior year, and he, they had been so good the year before as juniors, and that just like Syracuse show up with that zone in the Elite Eight, and they just had no answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just had nothing. You know, and he called timeout after timeout after timeout, and it just never got any better. But I'll be rooting for uh, Calvin Sampson for sure uh, this spring. Now, a friend of the city where I am in Buffalo, New York, where I've grown and raised, Nate Oates is a friend of the city. Um, he did great things here for the basketball team here. That unfortunately, no one really cares that much about, which is why, well, one of many reasons I'm sure he left. But he's at Alabama, who's had a fantastic season, but all of a sudden, maybe has hit a snag, and there's this thing with a gun, and I don't kind of understand it all. Um, but where where do they stand, kind of in general? I don't know that we need to go into a whole thing about something that maybe isn't even, f you know, flushed all the way out yet. Yeah, but. but do you, do you look at them and say, uh-oh, or do you still think that they're going to be able to play out this season the way it's been going, or is this going to derail them? Do you think kind of – it's kind of a way to kind of ask you about that without yeah. making you comment on that specifically. You know what I mean? I no, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, look, like, so, you know, the, the revelation in, in recent days um, is – so early in the season, Alabama kicked a kid off the team after he was charged with murder. Um, right. And uh, recently, you know, and, and that kind of like, obviously people paid attention to that, but it was like a little used player at the end of the bench who like the, you know, Alabama was just like, uh, yeah, that's terrible. He's not on the team anymore. And that's all we're going to talk about it. You know, rightfully so. Right. Um, 
but their best player, Brandon Miller, who is a freshman, who is, again, one of these guys who is a potential top five pick, um, supposedly, according to police in a, in a hearing this week, he was the one who brought the gun brought to, to his him? teammate yeah. Yeah. upon request, right? Like his teammate texted said, him hey, or something bring that gun. and said, yeah. hey, please bring me my gun. Yeah. And he did. And that's not illegal. Um, right? Like, right. And he didn't know uh, he, he might bring it. He could have meant bring it because I'm going to the range later. He didn't. Yeah, bring yeah. it because I'm defending myself or whatever. Right. right? So it, that, it's not illegal, but like a lot, obviously, uh, a lot of people have kind of raised their eyebrows at that, right? Understandably sure. so. Um, and without getting into all the complexities of it, I think that the thing that really has raised people ire is A, it wasn't ever discussed whether or not Alabama knew about it. And it's kind of unclear how much NATO knew about it. But also his comments about it were pretty tone deaf and he's since apologized but he basically was like oh yeah he was in the wrong place at the wrong time it's like you know that you can't really wrong place wrong time like you need a little bit more nuance in your (laughs) your discussion of it right like it's it's like like, yada 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 seinfeld thing yeah it was sort of like oh yeah Yeah, the police said he's fine and uh we have no reason to like worry about it any further so we're just kind of kind of you know it sounded very much like a coach being like yeah but he's our best player so we're not really going to look into this too deeply you know right. um but he's apologized since and obviously it's a very sensitive issue you know a woman lost her life and she was a, a mother of young kids and like 23 years old so it's like it's a horrible deal um that goes way beyond basketball uh and, and which is why people were a little distressed with with his comments and and will it derail them i have no idea uh, i mean we'll see like if it becomes I don't think they're going to sit him out. I saw some people talking about it earlier today. You know, Alabama plays t- tonight. This is, you know, we're speaking on Wednesday. And, um, you know, he'll probably play. If he didn't, like, if they weren't going to sit him out before this became public, um, it doesn't seem like they're going to now. But there is much more of a public sort of understanding of what this is. And if it's a constant topic of conversation, um, I can see it being a, a way that their season – comes a little bit unstuck um, because it's it's not the kind of thing you can just be like oh yeah it's a distraction like no oh, it's it's more serious than that right and and will probably be a thing that um, we shall is see kind discussed of kind of yeah. every time they play from here on out. Hollis Price was the guy I couldn't think of by the way I don't know why there you I go Hollis Price. Hollis Price that's right but yeah that's on me my bad Hollis um, <laughs> is Northwestern the best story this year in terms of just. <laughs> I mean, they've won all these games. They stormed the court. They didn't storm the court, but they were awesome wins. They're winning all these big time games in a row. I'm sure Michael Wilbon somewhere is really happy. Um, they strike me as one of those teams that jumps out. It's like, wow, that's a cool story. Um, is that the team you look at when someone says, to you, hey, who's the who's the cool team this year? Is there someone else? Yeah, I think Northwestern is definitely up there. I mean, anytime Northwestern is going to the tournament, no, they, they've done it once in school history, and it was a massive deal, obviously. That was a while ago now, and, and Chris Collins has been there for a little while, and I think there's there's been a little bit of like, okay, are we going to like actually make progress, or are we just kind of stuck being like pretty decent every year? Um, this year, they're, you know, they're much better. Again, they lost arguably their best player, um, Pete Nance, to North Carolina in the transfer portal. They lost another big guy, Ryan Young, to Duke, who's like a backup center at Duke. Pretty solid player, even though he, he, with all due respect to Ryan, he looks like a dude you'd see in your pickup run. Um, he does not look like a high-level Division One athlete, but his output, like his numbers are very much that. So uh, more power to him. But um, the, the, the 
the, their team kind of had a little like, oh, our, people are coming and picking off some of our best pieces here. And they had to kind of stick in and stay together. Um, Chase Audige and Boo Booey particularly are, are guys who could have gone elsewhere in the transfer portal and like seen a, a route to national title contention probably more easily that way um, and didn't. And it's paying off. You know, they're going to go to the tournament again this season. They had, they've had one of the best two-week runs probably in school history beating Purdue and Indiana. Um, in back-to-back games and really sealing their tournament bits. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely among among the best stories in, in the sport this year, for sure. Throw one more team out that fits that bill. Kind of just a cool team if you're looking for one to hop on and, and enjoy the ride with. Maybe, I mean, I think maybe Providence. Is, Providence, we- yeah, Providence is always fun. I mean, Ed Cooley is, is Ed Cooley, which means you're going to have some great quotes and some right. very entertaining basketball. They, they can't seem to, you know, this – pardon me, this last 18 months or so, they can't seem to help but play like overtime, extremely tight two-point games. They're just, they're that kind of team that whatever the other team's level is, they'll either rise to it or maybe um, descend to it a little bit, uh, usually rise to it and and provide some some really high-level entertaining basketball. Um, they're always fun. I think Virginia's a pretty good story. Kihei Clark is, you know, uh, now a fifth-year senior. He actually just passed, and this is, because of COVID, um, obviously Shane Battier didn't have an extra year to play, but he just passed Shane Battier as the ACC's all-time winningest player. Oh, wow. He's having he's having a great senior season. He came back, and actually a lot of Virginia fans didn't want him to. Um, yeah. You know, it was sort of like yeah. frustration with them. They were very average last year. He's been around since the national title team when he was like a plucky freshman helping them guard the perimeter with, with all the talented guys around him. Um and he's since kind of had to reinvent himself two or three different times, depending on what various Virginia teams have needed from him. And now he's like the elder statesman playing extremely well. Every Virginia fan is happy he came back. But there was a while there, you know, last season where people were like, please, Kihei, like, we love you. Thank you for the national title. But like, enough is enough. Like, can we please move on? And so him sort of winning everybody back over. That is cool. Um, while yeah. leading a really good Virginia team sort of back to the top of the sport has been uh, has been fun to see as well. The sports guests are here finishing up with Iman Brennan from The Athletic. I always talk up The Athletic, uh, especially the way they work in college sports, I think is great. And he's got cool columns. He's got power rankings. He's got, you know, bubble watch stuff. Just the really fun, I think, um, part of the sport um, in terms of what I might read on a week-to-week basis of course you can find his work on the athletic there's always a code for the athletic by the way um so i'm sure if you're interested in jumping on now before the tournament there's got to be some deal out there somewhere right man yeah i'm sure there's something i don't know <laughs> there's always the, something the actual i don't have one for anybody but i'm sure if you yeah you just hunt around for it just, a little bit or you just honestly if look. you're not a subscriber you could just probably open up your phone and yeah, it'll and try it. There's probably something they'll get you signed up for. It'll find him. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at E A M O N N Brennan. Um, and uh, anything else you want to plug or mention in terms of where you're at, where they can find you before I throw no. you like two or three quick ones? All right, let me give you just two or three quick ones before you go out. Uh, I won't ask you to give me a final four because that's a silly thing to do because who knows who's going to be in one bracket and all that. But just give me five teams that you think legitimately could win the national title. Sure. Well, we mentioned Houston. Um, okay. We mentioned Alabama. Um, I think Kansas is a good shout. That you know that they're. I don't. I mean, winning a second straight national title is incredibly rare and difficult to do. 
But if you're looking for teams that are led by really good guard play, that really shoot it, that can adapt and switch to different different defenses, I think Kansas is, you know, obviously being in the Big 12 as well, as battle-tested as it gets, that conference sure. is a buzzsaw this year. Loaded, yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. I think UCLA is, is another good one. Like, again, experienced guard play with Tiger Campbell. Jaime Hawkins is an All-American um, they are elite defensively in kind of the way that Mick Cronin teams typically were at Cincinnati before he went to UCLA. And since then, because of their personnel and their talent, they've been good defensively, but they've been like a balanced sort of fun offensive team as well. And when they went to the title game two years ago in the, in the, um, in the 2021 title game in the bubble, they were like a hot shooting mid-range making everything sort of team um, that didn't really guard well at all. And they just kind of rode Johnny Juzang and some hot shooting to the final four. They're not that anymore. They're, they are a classic Mick Cronin defensive team that is capable and competent offensively and has elite level talent in the way that he did in at Cincinnati. Um, But I think that combination actually works really well. So they're another one that I think a little bit under the radar because their wins are not as, as great and there's been some grumbling from UCLA about like whether they'll get the spot in the bracket they think they deserve. But wherever they end up, they'll be a two or a three seed most likely. And they're, I think they're really dangerous. The uh, I'll make this last thing. So it's an interesting year because the NHL and the NBA, they got a lot of tankers, right? Because everyone wants Connor Bedard or everyone wants the kid from France. But the kid from France on the NBA side being in France means that he's not going to be in the NCAA tournament. So who are some guys that maybe can become stars in the NCAA tournament? Like we've seen so many people over the years do like Seth Curry always comes up to me, like his run in Davidson, the way he just keep, that's where I knew Steph Curry was going to be great. Or, you know, maybe Morant a few years ago or whoever it would be that comes to mind for you. When you think about this guy who um, we knew he was great, but the NCAA tournament comes around and it just is like the launch pad for his stardom. Do you have a few guys for who that might be? Yeah. I mean, I think we mentioned Jarius Walker at, at Houston. Like he's already up there in, in terms of draft boards, but publicly I'm sure um, is not a household name yet. He'll get there. But you, if you, if he plays to his potential in the tournament, people will be pretty astounded by him. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think Kansas's freshman Grady Dick is like, I thought he was like a nice player that will have a long career at Kansas, but he's already really, really good. And I think we'll probably go not pro rather career. than later. Yeah. Okay. He's not going to yeah. have that long of a, if yeah. he keeps playing like this, gotcha. he's not going to have that long of a Kansas career. Like when he got to campus, I, I actually saw him play in a, in a, in a uh, recruiting event, like not long after he had signed for Kansas. He's from Wichita originally, I think. And it was just like, like, he is the most Kansas player I've ever seen in my life. He is going to play four years there and, like, set the scoring record or whatever. And he got on campus, and he's, like, a 6'8 guy shooting, like, 45% from three or whatever. It's like, he's not going to be there that long. Um, yeah. So he's another guy, if he lights it up in the tournament, could could really explode in terms of both public awareness, but also, like, NCAA, you know, that sort of, like, okay, we're, we're confident in drafting you now um, in a way that maybe – um, I don't think NBA teams do that quite as much anymore as they used to. The way Stephen Curry is like, oh, this guy's a pro. Um, but it does still happen occasionally. So he, he would be a guy I would pick. All right. Well, I wish Arsenal good luck in, champion, or in excuse me, Champions League next year and uh, yeah. Premier League this year. Um, Fingers crossed. Do you have any questions for me? 
I do not. Okay. Uh, I think we're good. Do you have a mid-major you want to throw out before we go that could make a run the way these mid-major dialings tend to occasionally? I mean, the, the high-level one is Florida Atlantic. Okay. Um, they're probably the best mid-major team in the country if you're not talking about St. Mary's or Gonzaga, which not everyone should probably be aware of. Should but, know them but, right now, right? Yeah, yeah St. Mary's is, is really extra good this year, so keep an eye out for them. But Florida Atlantic is like the true mid-major that's having a great season this year. All right, check them out on The Athletic. I appreciate this. Enjoy the tournament, man. All right, man. Likewise. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Alright, I want to thank Iman Brennan Strong debut Thanks for joining us today. We're going to get to Kevin White, Kevin Snow, excuse me, in a second. But first, a book club update, and it's a big one. You know, sometimes for the book club, I'll send out 15, 20 different pitches to different publishers, and I'll hear back from nobody. And sometimes I'll hear back from one or two. And then sometimes I'll hear back from everybody, <laughs> and it can get crowded uh, but we got a lot of things coming and going. Let's go over it one by one. All right. First of all, The Science of Hockey, The Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport by Kevin Snow was the first book of the season. And we're going to finish that out in a minute. Uh, Kevin's going to be on the show. We're going to bring him in. We're going to talk about this. And we're going to say goodbye to The Science of Hockey, The Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. Really good book. Great way to start the year. Last week, we mentioned on the show, we have a new book. Also a hockey book, a hockey guy, Justin Bourne, is the author, and it's called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. And when explaining the book last time, I mentioned that he married Clark Gilly's wife. What I meant to say is he married Clark Gilly's daughter, but I screwed that up. And luckily, I have a lawyer in Canada who's able to correct these mistakes for, him, for me. I appreciate that. Uh, Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. By Justin Bourne. That's kind of up next. We're going to read through that. And uh, we'll have Justin on to talk about his story. I'm excited now that I'm done with the science of hockey to move on to that and find out about it. Now, either tomorrow, which is Friday here, uh, or Monday, I'm supposed to have a copy of Winning Fixes Anything, Everything. How Baseball's Brightest Mind Created Sports Biggest Mess by Evan Drellich, who's also a athletic writer. And it's a book about the Astro scandal. Uh, we, of course, famously had our friend Ben Ryder on the show back when the famous Astros SI cover came out. And then we had Ben on when the prediction he made about the Astros came on. And then when we had Ben on again when his book Astro Ball came out. So this is our second Astros book. It's called, again, Winning Fixes Everything. Now, it's a quick turnaround for this book because I already have Evan scheduled next Friday. So he'll, he'll either be on the next show or the show after that. So this one's going to go quick. Again, it's called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. 
and it's by Evan Drellich. It's available now. Go to it. All right. Another one we're adding this week. Uh, they came to me. I love when that happens, and it's a pretty big one. Red on red. Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in world football by Phil McNulty and Jim White. Um, excited to learn more. We had a really cool English soccer book last year. Well, I shouldn't say that. We had a Messi and Ronaldo book by two guys, Jonathan Clegg and his partner, Joshua something. I can't remember at the moment, but uh, Jonathan and Joshua. And they came on together at the end of last season to talk about that book. I thought I, English football was in my mind because their first book was about the Premier League. Uh, but we'll have hopefully Phil and Jim on together or one or the other to talk about red on red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in world football. All right, another one that's debuting, and I'm really excited about this one. Uh, it comes out in March, and uh, it's one that I've known about for a long time uh, and have been looking forward to. Uh, red on Red, by the way, uh, comes out. Oh, uh, that was the audio book, which doesn't come out till August. It's before that. Uh, comes out, oh, August 4th. It came out August 4th, 2022. So that's out. So you can get that one wherever you get books now. Uh, and the next one that we've had circled on the calendar for a long time and been waiting for, it's called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America by Abraham Reisman. Reisman? We'll find out how to say that. Uh, but a Vince McMahon book, oof, can't wait. Uh, and actually, our next guest has some interesting news on Vince McMahon, uh, believe it or not, when we talk to Kevin. Uh, so Ringmaster, which comes out in March, March 28th, to be example, to be to be for sure. And then the last thing is I'm still waiting to find out about those two soccer books from the guy in England. He says he's signing them. I still haven't uh, seen them, but just to give him a plug, The Game by Piero Cellini and Inside Diego by Fernando Signorini and two other guys. Uh, we'll see what happens with those books. I told the story last time. I reached out about the book, The Game, which is about the 82 Italian team. Uh, and he said, look, I'd love to have you, but the books are from England and I can't ship them to you. And he doesn't speak English anyway. And then what about these books? And he offered PDFs with watermarks. And I said, ah, I'd love to do it, but I can't read those kind of things. It's too hard to read and I wouldn't want to commit. And he said, all right, I'll send them. So whatever we get, we'll feature. And in the meantime, we'll plug them if we can. The Game by Piero Trellini and Inside Diego are those two books. So that means we're taking one goodbye today, and then we have one, two, three, four, potentially six books we're working on in the club. So it's crowded. I'm going to be reading a lot here as we end the, the winter and enter the spring, um, and that means we'll have some good debuts too. Justin has been on before, Justin Bourne, but we never had Evan Drellich. He'll be a debut. We never had Phil McNulty or Jim White. He'd be a debut, and we've never had Abraham Reisman either. So... Good books, good topics. Vince McMahon, Liverpool, Manchester United, Astros baseball, a good old human interest story by Justin Bourne, a wide range of different sports books, and I'm working on all kinds of other stuff as well, so we'll see what happens. All right, let's get done with the science of hockey here, the math, technology, and data behind the sport, and do a debut uh, with Kevin Snow. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back. 
Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett, and myself look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Good. We are separated by mere miles and miles and miles of ice. It's like, uh, what's the name of the palace or the country where the frozen people live? That's Buffalo today. uh, Absolutely. Arendelle. Arendelle, I think it is. Not too many days I get to use a floor tile tool to scrape off my front walkway, but so so be it. It's Buffalo in the winter. That is our life here. You're the author of a book called The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. And I want to get to that. We will in a second. But you've also had a pretty interesting career. I was looking at your your LinkedIn, and you're all over the place, including a long stint with the Sabres, work with the WWE, Major League Baseball, all kinds of different stuff. How'd you kind of get started in the sports uh, sports business. What got you going? Well, I grew up in Toronto. I'm Canadian and uh, I moved to Buffalo in 2000 after I got married. My wife's American and we decided on Buffalo being kind of a midpoint for the two of us. And um, The work I did in Toronto was writing for TV Guide magazine. I was, I was the sports editor there for a few years and just always, you know, I've always been passionate about sports. I always wanted my career to Hold kind on of... Hold on one second. You mentioned TV Guide and I grew up with it and I'm sure you did as well. You know, my grandma... I mean, she she couldn't operate the TV without the TV guide, like as if you needed both of them, you know, to even work the TV. But um, do you see their back? They have a new magazine called TV Insider, and it's I have not seen that. It's for streaming, so it's like taking the principles of TV Guide and applying them to streaming. I would assume like what's where each month kind of a thing. Um, I did an impulse buy in the toilet at like three in the morning one night, so I got to see what this is. Just kind of in honor of my grandma, because she couldn't operate <laughs> the television without the uh, without the TV guide. I'm sorry, go ahead. So you were no, no, it's yeah, so that, I'm fascinated no, it's, by TV guide. So that was very cool. So you started there in Canada in the, in yeah, the early ninety late nineties, uh, mid mid to late nineties, and then I uh, moved to Buffalo in two thousand. And then uh, one of the things you know coming down here, one of the first people I approached about. Uh, getting a job was at the Sabres and kind of made contact with them early on and then uh, spoke to Mike Gilbert, who was their director of PR at the time. And um, mm-hmm. right before the the 04 lockout, the, the 2004 lockout, he had, we had talked a little bit and then they kind of they gutted their staff. And then he called me one about mid-February that year when there's potential of the, the NHL coming back. And he reached out to me and wanted to know my employment status and would I be available to come to work if, if I was interested within a matter of days. Because that's when, if you remember back to that year, in February, they thought the league was going to come back and they were going to play for what, right. three months. Right, and Gretzky like. had sort of organized some kind of last-minute heroics that fell through, right, if I remember? Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. there's the famous ballroom talk when they, they were all supposed to be huddled in a, in a, in a ballroom in, the, in Manhattan somewhere for a press conference to announce it. and then it fell through, and then from that point on, the season was canceled. And then, you know, I got a call from Mike in uh, in July that year once the lockout was resolved, and he said, you know, still, if you want that job in PR, it's yours. 
So I started there August 1st of, of 05. I was one of the first people they hired after the lockout. Good time to start with the Sabres, Steve. That's a, that's like stepping in and maybe one of the greatest two-year periods of the team's history. Yeah, and we had no clue. Honestly, right. the talk that year, like, you know, if you knew hockey, if you were a hockey fan, you were kind of thinking, okay, if this team can kind of stay above water, they'll, they'll be fine. And, and it started you know, but, slow. It started slow. It didn't just... Like, we lost to Ottawa, like, what, 10-4 to one night in the beginning of that season. It started poorly, not even, not just on the ice, but the fans were. Yeah, It was kind of pre-lockout attendance mm-hmm. with, like, 10, 12,000 people. There was no buzz at all about the team. I think Sports Illustrated picked us to be dead last in the Eastern Conference, and that was a big thing. Larry Quinn, I remember, he, he had that article on his wall in the office saying, this is, we're going to show them, and we're kind of like, okay, Larry, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then as the as the season went on, it just kind of snowballed, and you hit that December run when the one that run, and then but then Ryan Miller got hurt, but then Marty Baron got hot, and it was just kind of you start thinking maybe something's there is something about this team, and they remind me a lot of this year's team in terms of the youth and the chemistry they have, and it just it was just so much fun to be part of that, and then you know like I said, growing up in Toronto, my my favorite season, I'm a Leafs fan, and the '93 playoffs when they lost to the Kings was heartbreaking, but yeah. it was so much fun that year. That season in the 06 playoffs in Buffalo reminded me just like that. It was just, they were so close getting to game seven against Carolina and just to be part of that run on the inside. And just, so I'd let, never, let me ask I'd you never this. lived and died like that with a team before. Where were you when you found out Jay McKee wasn't getting on the, on the plane? <laughs> uh, we were sitting in the office. There's a bunch of us because a lot of people had gone to Carolina for that game. And I got a call from, uh, our, the other PR guy, Chris Bandura, and he said, "Just, just so you know, uh, McKee's probably not playing tonight." Oh. <laughs> and I'm, kind of, I'm thinking, okay, that's a joke, right? Right. And then word kind of that's when it started to filter to the media, so people started hearing about it. So people in the office, we all kind of gathered together, and then a bunch of us decided to go for lunch that day. And it was the most somber lunch ever. Just we're all staring at each other, thinking this can't be possible. And knowing what they're going to run out on defense that night, oh I was my like, God. can we do this? And and You're so up close. To, up two, two, one after two periods. I was at game six, okay? And uh, my friend Josh and I went. And um, I, the game was whatever. Like, it 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 felt like a while we were getting set up for, like, an all-time Buffalo dif- disappointment. But that, yeah. team, that team transcended that, you know, and they were able to to score. Briere scored. I mean, the first home playoff game, Briere scores an OT against Philly. The last home playoff game that year, he scores an OT against Carolina. But I just remember walking out of the building that night and how insane the atrium was and how loud coming down the the escalators from the three hundreds to the ground level. And the escalators felt like they were shaking and I never felt a more like it, like a a moment with my city. You know what I mean? It just felt transcendent of you in sports. It's just like going out into the, into the, the spring and hearing the horns and, I don't know. It was an unbelievable night to then, of course, be woken up to, oh, Jay McKee had a scrape on his shin in Ottawa uh, half three weeks ago, and it's infected today. That's like, what? You know? Yeah, part know. part of my job was, in PR was I had to get the stats down to the locker rooms after the game. And I remember going down, I, I would take a quick way through a stairway through the back of the building that would bring me down to the 100 level, then I would kind of shoot down a stairway to the locker room hallway. And as I came down the stairway, that's the noise that was coming from up the oh stairway. It was just, and then you get to the, in the locker room area, and the players were standing in the hallway, kind of looking around, saying, "What's going on?" They, they thought there was like a fight or something. They couldn't figure out what it was, and guys kind of started poking their head out, thinking, "What? Like 
this is un- unreal. And, you know, I've heard people, they, they still talk about that now. And I remember hearing a story about how a couple of those guys had spoken to the current team saying, they told that story saying, this is how good it can be here. This is how much yeah. fun, how passionate it can be. And this is why. And they explain it. And these guys are just, from what I was told, these guys' eyes were just bugging out thinking, are you kidding me? This gets that good here? And yeah, just trust me. It's, it's awesome when, it, when we win. All right. Well, let me ask you this then. Take me through your day on July 1st, 2007. <laughs> um. <laughs> That was uh, not as good. <laughs> not thankfully, as good that today. was yeah. Thankfully, that was uh, pre-Twitter, and right. um, I had actually gone out the night before, went at a couple of beers with Tim Graham, who at the time was writing for the Buffalo News. Sure, we know Tim well and, on the show. Yeah, yeah, and I said we were just kind of sitting there, t- and he he says to me, he's like, "I'm going to text Chris Drury right now, see what he thinks." And he texted Chris, and he said, "You know, because what are you thinking about doing?" And he said, "Not going to, not going to tell you." And then we were Tim and I thinking, "There's no way these guys can leave. There's just no way they can leave." And then the next day, you know, obviously, I'm I was the one who would write the press release when we'd sign these guys. So you know, I was kind of on call for the phone calls that day, like, like you always were on July 1st for any kind of news of any kind. I had family in town. We we're just kind of sitting around outside, and then I get a phone call f- from Mike Gilbert, and he says to me. He's uh, they're they're both gone, Ugh. and it's like you're kidding me. Like I, I thought it was a it was a joke, and because I knew early in the year that year in uh, two thousand start of uh, the two thousand six season, they made a fairly concerted effort to go after Chris Drury, right? A five for twenty five or something deal that was allegedly agreed maybe on, and it didn't happen or something. What do you remember? Yeah, that, yeah. I don't know the intimate details of it, but right. there was a point when he remember he got hot at the start of that season. He was oh, yeah. scoring goals at a pretty good pace. I had I was I do the I was doing the game notes at the time the media notes and I had a note there kind of tracking his progress saying oh this is the fastest Sabers been to this point in the season since whatever and you know he's on pace for this and I remember somebody in management came over and said you got to stop putting that note in the, in the thing because we're trying to sign this guy and you're right. gonna make his price go up if you're not careful <laughs> right so that, that, that's when I th- kind of thought things were heating up but then they died off and there was the talk of the the offer was never actually made and and you, you started to wonder as the year went on because the guys you know. I, I knew I got to know Danny Breer a little bit, and he always was very jovial, very happy guy, very nice guy. Chris was much more guarded. He was the high hello guy. I didn't really get to know him too much. I had no idea what he was going to do. I was convinced Breer was staying, but I, you know that when I got that news, I was just, I guess, I was devastated. At, is a very good word for it. I was at our park for a tragically hip show, and. I just, you know, and a lot of people were there. It wasn't time for the show yet. We were just kind of hanging out at our park in the parking lot or whatever. And I just remember, like, it kind of spreading through the parking lot and just the mood that night sort of just, you know, wasn't what it usually is at a Tragically Hip show or whatever. No, absolutely you know, not. Everyone was, and it's crazy, too, because I've become pretty good friends with SL Price through the years on this show. And he wrote an article in SI in April about Jury. And um, he was actually at... The, I was also there at the Penguins game uh, that year when Crosby and Lemieux were on the ice together to announce the arena and that Pittsburgh hockey was staying and they're playing the Sabres and Drury scored in the last minute that night with SL Price in the building there to write about essentially him being clutch and could this clutch athlete bring a championship to Buffalo and all that. And um, he's even said that at that point, you know, Drury thought he would be a saber for a long time and i guess maybe because of what had already transpired through the negotiations had led him to believe that so it's disappointing it fell through and then obviously a couple of days later kind of edmonton forced their hand with vanek and it was really sort of the it didn't die immediately but it was the death of sabers hockey for a long time on that day um 
you know, and Miller and Vanek were able to, I don't, I don't know if I want to say prolong the era, but there was still a couple good, decent seasons in there and big moments like the, the first winter classic, which I'm sure you were a part of. I don't know if you have a story there. Um, but the, for me, the first winter classic was something that just kind of, you know, I was, I was on the outside being in PR. We, the league really takes over that event, right? But, that's their um, event, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of, we kind of go along with them and just kind of do their own. We do our, go about our daily business and things like that. But it was just for me, I was, uh, I sat, I was in the press box that day and I was the uh, press box announcer for the, for the league that day. And just kind of just being there and just, just the spectacle of it all. And just, you know, we, the, the football press box was jammed and I'm used to the the, uh, the arena press box, which I think we held about 125 people. And I think that football press box had to be double. And there was people from everywhere. And that's when you kind of realize how big it really was because you spend all this time working on the local angle of it. And it's your, I'm, I'm the Sabres guy. So I'm, worried, I'm worried about are my, are my interns going to get there? Are, are, we need to get out our game notes, transporting all the documents to the thing and getting used to a new building. But then you get there and you walk in the press box. It's like, this is a huge event. And then just to see all the people and just the, the size of the crowd and the buzz in the crowd. And I got to go outside during the game at one point and just kind of stand and soak it all in. And just, you look back at it now and you think that the, we, we didn't originate the event because it had come from Canada, but to be part of the first one is really awesome. Just to think back on. Right. They had had the heritage classic there or whatever. Right. I remember the goalies wearing the beanies on top of the helmets and stuff. Yeah. Out in, out in Edmonton, in Edmonton, Edmonton yeah. Montreal, I think was the first one. Did you, um, here's one thing that's been a, a, a sorry, I don't know, a secret, uh, uh, an unpleasant fact of the Sabres and the Bills for a long time here in Buffalo. It seems like nobody ever, it's like that that Motley Crue song, don't go away, don't go away mad, just go away. It seems like everyone walks away from there with sort of a bitter taste in your mouth. Are you, are you still a guy who can go and enjoy the arena? Did they treat you well on the way out? Because it seems like they have an issue with that. Uh, I left on my own. I okay. left for another, another opportunity. Um, and it was, you know, I... Still have a lot of fr- a lot of friends there. A lot of them have left. A lot of them were forced out during yeah. the pandemic situation. Pandemic, yeah. And um, the people that I worked, I spent my last four years uh, running Sabers.com. And the the guy who was my grad assistant at the time, I hired him, brought him into the position. When I left, he took over. And then the guy uh, that writes with him, his name's Chris Rindak, and his, their writer there, Jordan LaBarber, he was one of my interns there. So and he he came in after I left too. So. I still, you know, I'm in touch with those guys regularly. Good. A couple of the people, uh, Scott Loeffler, who runs the Bandits, uh, Rick, talked to him a lot. But, yeah, I've still got a lot of friends there. I was at the game the other night. I ran into a few people. And it's just, you know, just kind of friendly faces, whether it's an usher, even the bartenders in the Harbor Club, that type of thing. There's a lot of people have stuck around throughout the years. And then you did some work with NHL.com, kind of similar stuff, but for the league-wide, would you say? or? Yeah, I was brought in uh, for it was an eight month uh, contract. They, when they transitioned from the old websites they were using and their their CMS system to the new websites that you see now, and uh, so I was working uh, game nights f- with them and kind of helping teams transition from the old to the new. And because they were, it was hard to explain, but they were really trying to. They wanted it up and running. I think it was by July first that year. So some teams were resistant to change and they let them stick stay on. So I would work with them in terms of like posting their content, updating the the game night stuff all through the playoffs and the start of the next season. And it's just, it was basically what I did before with the Sabres, but it was on a contract basis, but I uh, went from there. And then I also did a, a stint with the uh, WWE. A couple yeah, years I saw ago. that too. I was a copywriter with them when they transitioned from when they were the WWE network, when they had their standalone network. And they moved to Peacock. Yeah, when they yeah. went to Peacock, they had to transition all their programming over 
to the Peacock net all the Peacock right. Networks uh, system. So I was part of a team of I think there were six of us. We wrote we had to rewrite and edit. I think it was forty thousand hours of programming descriptions. Wow! So, so like just prime time wrestling, nineteen eighty six, Gorilla Monsoon and Vince McMahon or in uh, Bobby Heenan feature a match exactly. with Hulk Hogan and the British Bulldogs or something like that. It was going back to the yeah. early eighties. Yeah, and all the championship they, wrestling. They, they, they bought all those different shows from different, yep. all the, the WCW content, things like that. And just, you know, it was actually interesting. One of the things I found most fascinating about with that was, you know, you, when, when I'm writing now, you, you go by the AP style guide or the Chicago manual style when you're writing. The WWE had their own style book, and it was 150 pages long. Words you can't use, things like that. It's it's a belt, not, or a title, not a belt, things like that. Yeah, right? yeah. title, not a belt. Yeah. Uh, you, could, you couldn't reference certain uh, former wrestlers, whether it be – legal reasons or things they'd done in their past that just that they, you couldn't promote them anymore <laughs> uh, obviously no, no mention of chris benoit was allowed right anywhere, of course like yeah. that so yeah. so it's just kind of interesting Wild. to see yeah. how deep it really goes and when i got this 150 sent me the guide, pages 150 pages wow oh my god vince mcmahon's nuts he's nuts <laughs> not nuts but very smart smart right. man yeah, yeah yeah he's gonna become a very rich man from the sounds of it the too. greatest promoter of all time i mean no doubt I, who's a better promoter than him I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, did you work with John Delpina at all with, at the NHL uh, when you were doing uh, a, a little bit? Yeah, uh, he he was he was the PR manager, not manager, but he was in the PR department there. So I would have some interaction with him. He was more of the corporate guy. So a lot of times when um, uh, the commissioner uh, Batman would come to Buffalo, John would be with him, that right. type of thing. So and then any kind of. Uh, League releases, you know, players of the week, things like that. We would kind of work with him in terms of nominating a player, stuff like that. But he's a good guy, and it's like, like I always like to see the uh, former journalist in, in the PR roles. Yeah, he. We did an hour on the '94 playoffs on the show a couple of years ago because he was he followed the Devils for the first few rounds, and then once the Devils were eliminated by the Rangers, he went, you know, did the cup with the Rangers. And I was a huge Pavel Bure fan growing up, and also a huge fan of the Rangers team. And we did a really fun hour on that, which was really cool. He was a great guy, really cool to me. Um, I was really interested as well looking through some stuff. And we'll get to the book. The book is called The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport, which is great as well. And we'll do that next. But I just wanted to ask you real quickly because my grandparents come from Abruzzo uh, in Italy, and I'm a huge fan of the Azzurri. And when they won the Euro uh, uh, you know, in 2021, the 2020 Euro, which was played in 2021, um, for the first time in my life, I, I felt like I needed m- more. Because for my whole life, I've been a fan of the national team and would watch the World Cup and the Euro, and, and I just felt like I needed to stay with these guys, and I loved the team so much. Really, I, I was out on sports in a way, um, and they brought me back uh, and in so many ways. But um, I've you know enjoyed club soccer and, and, and especially the Italian teams. And before we talked, I was watching the old lady uh, play in Europa League, and you've written about... <laughs> Uh, Juventus and AC Milan and some soccer stuff as well. I was just wondering about your soccer background, especially when it comes to the Italian sides that you've you've written about as well. Uh, this my soccer background is strange. It's I would call it limited in terms of um, not a huge viewer. I'm not. I, I watch the the World Cup things like that every year. I growing up in Toronto, I had uh, friends that were Scottish and English who were hardcore passionate soccer fan so i would kind of like take it in through them and i knew knew of this the players and the teams that type of thing um had a friend whose dad would go to the pub every saturday morning to watch watch soccer because they let let the people in early that type of thing so i knew of the passion through there but 
I got involved in those two books. It was through um, uh, Cavendish Square Publishing, the people, the same company that I work with for uh, the Ronda Rousey biography that I wrote uh, in 2017, I believe it was. And they did a series on soccer's greatest clubs. And they asked me if I was interested in doing a book on Juventus. And obviously, it's you, you know of you, you if you know anything about soccer, you know you know Juventus. Juventus. Yep. So it was, for me, it was I knew the basics of Juventus, but I would spend I just spent a ton of time researching and watching old videos and things like that. And the book, the one thing about the book is it was targeted at I think it was a ninth grade to twelfth grade reading level, so it wasn't really super in depth in terms of um, like really not, like the hardcore soccer information. It was more of a background of who the team was, where they came from, the history and some of the things they've gone through, any kind of the the, the trials and tribulations. Yeah, the family. Yeah, yeah, the growth of the family, how the family – it was basically, for lack of a better term, it was essentially a family business that grew into yep. a massive, massive corporation. Yeah, the, uh, the Agnelli family, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. And it's it was – for me, that, that was just – just to learn about that, because, you know, like I said, you, everyone knows who Juventus is, but to know the backstory a little more and to understand what the passion of it and, you know, reading about how the, the fans travel everywhere, it's like it's no different than the Bills fans in a lot of ways. They just, these people have been doing this for so many years. And so th- th- I, I did that book, and actually, I was midway through that book. And you took, did Milan, took, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the publisher called me and said, hey, one of our writers just dumped out. Uh, could you do AC Milan too? <laughs> cool. And I was like, "Yeah, sure." The devil. When do you need it by? Like, when, when do you need the book by? Then? Two months from now. So I literally finished one and rolled right into the next one. Thank, luckily, the, they used a similar format for both books in terms of the history and the background. So I'd done the one re- research on one with them both being Italian. I was very familiar with the very different websites and the leagues there because they kind of there was a lot of crossover in terms of right. just their with, you know, the history over yeah. the years. So yeah, so it was it was very. Not easy to do, much simpler to do that way. But again, AC Milan, the history of that team, and just just to learn about them more. Like I, I don't watch a lot of them now, but I do. If I see they're on, I'll tune into it. I follow them. I see the scores and just kind of check in every now and then. And just it's just the, the soccer is just to me is just I it's so big, and it's obviously the, the World Cup shows you how big it really is. And but it's just for me to follow soccer, it just I, it's, it's difficult for me to throw it into my my menu of sports viewings as, as it is now. I'm pretty much a a hockey baseball guy for the most part. Yeah, I um well good good day for the old lady today. Looks like they're gonna advance in Europa League, which they might need to win if they want to be in Champions League next year because they've had another scandal this year uh and have taken got t- fifteen points taken away. Doesn't seem like it's as bad as two thousand six, but sometimes the thing with cap capital gains, I had Gabriel Marcotti on to try to explain it to me. We did an hour, I still don't understand it. Uh <laughs> but uh but um yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I can watch videos for hours of just Italians celebrating in Little Italy in Toronto, um, winning the Euros and, and things like that. So I do have people are sick of it at this point on the show, and we do have to move on. But that's cool. Uh, interesting stuff. The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport by Kevin Snow is the book I had him on to talk about. And I really enjoyed it. And it's not what I thought, Kevin, but before we get to that, this is a series, it seems like. I noticed there's a science of football, a science of baseball. I, I think, I'd assume there's a basketball. How'd you get picked to be the guy to, to handle the science of hockey? Well, there was, um, they actually did, they did a science of golf as well. And that came, I think that came out around mid-May last year. And what happened was, uh, I remember Kevin Sylvester, who used to work for the Sabres, was the broadcaster. Uh, Kevin's a good friend of mine, and he sent me a text. Uh, it was around, around this time last year, around late February. 
and he sends me a text and says, do you want to write a book? And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, know, knowing Kevin and he's kind of always up to something, trying to make the next big plan, next big move. And I was like, so I reluctantly text him back. I'm like, tell me more. And so he, what happened was that he, he now works for PGA Tour Radio and one of his colleagues there uh, had just, was just finishing up the science of golf and the publisher wanted to do science of hockey. So they kind of put a feeler out to see if anyone knew any uh, writer looking for some, a project to work on. So he connected me with the guy, the author of that book, of the golf book. He explained to me what it was all about. And then he connected me with the, the publishing rep. And I spoke to her. We, we had a, a half-hour conversation. It's, this all happened in one day. So it was a half-hour. <laughs> so I, I talked to her, and she said, you know, you, you sound qualified. you got a great background. And so the next step was for me to – I had to write a sample chapter and submit to them kind of a, a basic outline of how the book would look in terms of the chapters, the chapter list, and like I said, the sample chapter. And Did you read kind of the what, golf book or look at the golf book at all or whatever was no, that? No. Yeah. I'd, I'd read part of The Science of Baseball. They sent okay. that to me after I talked to her that day. So I read three or four chapters of that because, like I said, I'm a huge baseball fan, so I wanted to – I was actually interested in reading the book as opposed to just seeing how the book was – the style it was done in. But, um, yeah, I just kind of read through that a little bit and – I'd already, it's funny, I'd already come up with a chapter list, and then I saw the chapter list he did for baseball, it was similar to mine, kind of like step-by-step going through the, the different elements of the game. So I, that's right, when I kind of thought From the ball of, to the field, whereas yeah, the pop to the ring. The equipment, yeah. analytics, everything. And okay. kind of, that kind of made me think, okay, maybe I'm on the right path here with this, because like I said, the other three books I'd written previously were all about 20,000 words, and they were smaller. This was a full 60,000-word minimum manuscript, 220 pages, I think it was. So I didn't know how long was the, the length of time to do it and that type of thing. And then so I submitted everything kind of on a whim. So here you go, see what happens. And uh, on a Sunday night, I got an email from the editor saying, we love it, we want you to write the book. Mm. So that was mid-March. Um, and I, in our, I thought in one of our conversations, I could have sworn she said it was a six-month project. They wanted me to have it done by June, <laughs> and I luckily uh, my wife is an attorney, so I had her read read over the contract, and that was the first thing I said. I, go, I cannot get this book done by June. There's no way. If I if, they, if I want to do it properly, so I asked for an extension. They said, "Okay, how's July?" I said, "Well, not much better, but sure, I'll, I'll go for it." Do July. <laughs> nothing, so yeah. yeah, so I started signed the contract mid March, and I submitted the final manuscript in mid July. So it was a pretty hectic whirlwind time to get everything planned quickly and. Obviously, the biggest kind of one of the biggest problems I ran into was it was the playoffs. So right during the NHL playoffs, so to get interviews with certain people, right, was, people were, are busy. Yeah, people are focused yeah, lot, too. Yeah, focused. Yeah, whether it's yep. broadcasters, players were pretty much off limits. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of trying to like really work around that. But it was just an extremely hectic time. But it got done in the end, and I'm, I was happy with the finished product. When I heard about the book, and I guess in my head, maybe just because of the way discussions are in baseball and hockey and things. I was thinking more of the math of hockey, and that's kind of what I thought the book was, I guess, in my head, and was actually kind of excited that I was wrong. You know what I mean? Because I think I was a little bit skeptical in the sense like, oh, I don't want to learn about expected goals. And, you know, I don't know why that was what I was thinking it was, um, but I was glad that it was more about, like you said, sort of starting at the puck and going through the game and what science is involved in each thing and was really interested in things like like you know um the development of the arenas the different temperatures they use and things like that was did you have a favorite chapter to write or research was there something that you were particularly interested in that really um you know 
in terms of you personally because another thing i like about the book is each chapter is self-contained you can just you can put it on the back of the toilet and say all right next shit i want to read about i don't know goaltending you know and you can do that and then next time i'm in i'll read about the rink or whatever i like books like that uh is there a section that really interested you the most well it's funny like just i'll get to your question in a second sure. but it's funny you say it that way because my wife reads anything and she, I finally gave her the book when I said, here, she, she never asked me for it. I said, do you want to read this book or what? So she, and she's a, she understands hockey. She's a huge sure. fan. She's got, she's, she's met me. We've got my daughter plays, that type of thing. So she's been around it for the last 20 years. She told me afterwards, because I saw it sitting on the, in the bathroom, ironically, <laughs> and I noticed it was marked about the third chapter. And I said, well, you've been stuck on the third chapter for about a week now. She's like, no, you don't understand. I have to read a chapter and walk away. Because she said, "There's you're giving me information there that I have to think about." Yeah, you got to take it's, it in. Yep. Yeah, she yep. said, "I just can't roll through chapter one to chapter two. She goes, I read one. She's, you know, I, I may finish it fairly quickly, but then I think, okay, I'll read the next one another time." So it's it's interesting. You've kind of caught the same same thing there. It's, it was almost intentional the way I did that, but I didn't. It's, you could have easily done it all the way through, but I think breaking it up into this into the different elements was important to me because it was it allowed you to kind of tell the stories on their own without making it all. Not necessarily flow, but just kind of give it a different feel. And there's so much, so many different elements of hockey that are just, you know, you, to to kind of sum it up into one smooth, smoothly written book, it would be hard to do, I think. But uh, to get to your question, favorite chapter, I I've always been fascinated by the NHL draft. Okay, and yeah. So for me, just being able to talk to a couple people. Uh, former GM of, or assistant GM talked to a, a draft analyst with Sportsnet Canada, just kind of get their thoughts on things and just you know, get to ask questions about you know why players are picked when they are and what it, what is a team what's the team's thought process and do to, when they interview a player. And we spoke to uh, his name is Chris Gear. He was the former assistant GM in Vancouver, and he told me how they were bringing in uh, psychiatrists to kind of analyze when they, their interviews, the player interviews, when they're interviewing guys at the draft and. You know, it was necessitated by COVID for them because they were the league teams were forced to use uh, Zoom interviews for a while, and they had this psychiatrist in there to kind of watch the videos for like body language and their facial expressions. They really kind of drill deep into not just how fast can a guy skate and um, how strong is he and how tall is he and how 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 much do we think he's going to grow using, using the analytics types of things, but really the fact they're using science. And, and like a psychiatrist to, to look at, to watch a player's eye movement during an interview to see, is he nervous? Is he, you know, do we think he's lying? That type of thing. It's really fascinating to me to learn. It's, there's more than just, you know, I've always, I've been around the draft. I've been to several of them working with the Sabres and just talking to scouts and seeing how things generally work. But just to kind of go back a little bit and just learn about that. And then, you know, to tie it into the goal, why goaltenders are never drafted high in the, in the draft. So I've always wondered just, you know, it's one of the most important positions in hockey yet. You know, in the last, I think it's 10 years, there's only been something like 20 goalies selected in the first two rounds of the yeah, draft. Yeah, what is it, three o- first overall? Three, maybe four? DiPietro, uh, Fleury, and I think one other, maybe. Luongo, maybe? I, I can't Now I'm drawing, drawing a total blank. I'll find it. You go ahead. But yeah, just what, for a position that's supposed to be so important, why is it? Why is it? Goalies are barely taken in the first two rounds, let alone in the first round. And then you know you look at those goalies, and then it, it's, it's they're taking three to four years to develop. And what? Why? Why are teams not doing it? And then to hear a GM say, "Well, you know, the lifespan of a 
of a, a general manager is typically three to four years. So he, why is he going to roll the dice in a player who may not even right? Good point. Do do anything yeah. during his his tenure? So there's, there's that's the numbers part of it. So I tried. I didn't want to spend too much time on the science and like you, I'm not you know expected goals. It's, it's, it's part of it, but there's so many numbers. Not there's not not the numbers like there are in baseball, obviously, and you know in golf. When I talked to a guy who wrote the golf book, he was telling me he was he did a whole chapter about the rotation of a golf ball, things like that. That's I didn't want to bore people with stuff like that because I, I think it's 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 relevant to an extent, but it's, it's not all. There's more to the story. And then your eyes glaze over reading that kind of stuff. You know exactly. I mean? Yeah. It's taken me long enough to figure out analytics and understand how <laughs> yeah. that works. So yeah, same. When I did the, when I did the analytics chapter, I just really wanted to touch on a few things and kind of just explain to people how they 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 will they they can work. They're not they're not always right. You know, there's the eye test is one thing, but there's parts of analytics that you know even. Talk, the people I spoke to, that kind of opened my eyes to the value of them. And, you know, the, the game is headed in a direction where you're going to watch a broadcast. But we're seeing it now when teams are they're using the expected goals and high danger opportunities and things like those, this goalies, the goalie metrics, things like that. It's there. And, you know, like it or not, we almost have to understand how a, a way to really understand it in some form. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, Rick DiPietro. And uh, I'm going to probably screw up his French name. You're probably better at it than me. But Michel Placé, uh, who was actually drafted first overall twice. First overall in the 68 amateur draft by the Canadians. And then first overall by the Kansas City Scouts in the 1974 NHL expansion draft. Yeah, I think he. I think Kansas City went to Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. I think he played in Colorado. That's where he was. I, I remember him from. 298 NHL games for him. So just just shows you I'm an old man if I yep. remember the Kansas City Scouts and Colorado Rockies. Yep, those are those are those are the uh, three first overall. I think the guy who put found the game sheets to allow Pat Quinn and Brian Burke to draft Pavel Burry in the sixth freaking round uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. There should be some science behind that. Uh, but I'm you know a big Burry guy. Uh, the book again, it's called The Science of Hockey, the Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. And there's all kinds of things like this. I was really interested in the stuff about the rink itself. You know the the different reasons why they might have the rink at this temperature. You know, a little bit warmer for figure skating, a little bit colder for speed skating. Hockey's in the middle. These kinds of things. Um, I was also really surprised to find out how old our arena is here in Buffalo. Right? If you take out MSG, which you know, who knows how old that is? Because do you talk about the day it was built or this renovation or that or whatever? Take that out. The Flames have the oldest. Then four others, and then the buildings opened in '96. There's a few of them. Um, yeah, those are kind of the, the big sweet spot of a arena yeah. building in '96. Yeah, I was surprised by that. There's all kinds of things like this in the book. Um, geez, I don't know. There's stuff about goaltending. You go to they get out, you know, off the ice and on the ice. Stuff about how the puck is built. The puck, the NHL puck, is like Coca-Cola. It has a secret sauce or a secret recipe that. If you find out, they they kill you. I guess at this company. Um, yeah, they will. That was that was one of the first interviews I did was that with the, with the puck company, and uh, they the company that um, it's called Susie Baron. They're a French uh, manufacturer in Quebec, and I got they put me in touch with the manufacturing director, and he oversees the whole process of how the puck is built, and he wouldn't tell me anything. <laughs> he would seem like he it. would say there's there's six there's six or seven ingredients in this. I said, okay, well, give me one. Can you tell me? No, can't tell you that. 
And even just trying to find out information about the, how the chip is inserted into the puck, I, they wouldn't tell me that because that you know it's, some stories have been written, but you know they have a non-disclosure agreement with the NHL as far as releasing information. Like it's not where I'm going to go buy the ingredients and make start making pucks in my basement. So I don't know what the secret. Like, but I understand what what the elements are. But yeah, there's different parts of the game that are kind of strangely secret, and the puck is one of them. But it, it's and just to, when I started my research with that, I was thinking, okay, great. What am I, what else am I going to run across here? Right. But, <laughs> Who else doesn't want to tell me anything about the science for my book about yeah. the science? Um, one, one of the, one of them was the NHL. Like surprisingly, yeah. What were they stingy about? Uh, they didn't want to get involved. Oh, they didn't they, want to talk at all, huh? No, I approached them to do. I wanted to, to talk to a few people about um, to tie into the rink chapter. I wanted to know more about the outdoor games and how ice is the element, the things they deal with with that. And um, they said no. And I wanted to, one of the things I kind of in terms of numbers, I wanted to go deep in how the schedule is done, how yeah, the schedule is designed every year. Yeah, and they wouldn't do it, and for whatever reason. It's you know. Did you get a sense of, of why? They wanted to have some control over the book. Surprisingly, I was even though they weren't a partner at all. They they one of they came back and said you know these we need to know more about the book and we'd like to know um, what, what else you're doing and we we want a list of all the people you're inter- interviewing for the project, which I found kind of strange. And they mentioned how they would want to potentially say yes or no to certain people being involved and. One of the things I knew was going to be a non-starter was I interviewed uh, Chris Nowinski, the concussion expert, the former WWE oh, yeah, wrestler. Yeah, they don't want any part of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I t- talked to my editor and I said, "Listen, I, I'm not. Pull- I don't want to pull that chapter because that's an important chapter in the book, and the league, the league is definitely going to say no." So she, she kind of said, "If you if you can do without it, then we'll do without it." So kind of went without the league's involvement, but you know, it's too bad because the, I, it's, this wasn't a hatchet job in any way. It right. wasn't like I was. It was a pretty straightforward book, even though you know, this, I, I make a few comments about things, but you know, the Arizona situation being one of them, just the fact that other teams are building new rinks, and that team's playing in a 5,000-seat college rink. <laughs> hey, it's only temporary. You only got to walk outside to get to the visitor's locker room for the first 15 games. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, big deal. We're working on that. Um, all right. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me? Any questions for you? Um okay you don't have to have any no you mentioned that was, was there a chapter that you particularly enjoyed and why i love the rink stuff i'm just fascinated i worked at a hockey rink i worked in the pro shop i knew the ice makers well i know jim bender really well um and his family um who worked on the the rink at uh, for years worked on the ice crew at the arena and at holiday twin rinks where i worked in the pro shop um, so I was just fascinated by that kind of stuff. I was really interested about the different temperatures. And I think I even wanted a little bit more about how the ice is affected. Like at, in MSG, you did talk about it with the different events um, and how the ice comes out or the ice is moved. And uh, I really learned a lot about um, – I didn't think much about the cleaning process on the concrete and before you, you know. And, and so interesting stuff. I, I thought – I found that chapter to be fascinating just because I'm a rink guy. I love to be at the rink, you know, so – yeah, and if you if you think back, you mentioned holiday. It's like uh, I spent a lot of time over holiday with my daughter yeah. when she was growing up, and Same. The, that that ice would had those big black patches on it for a lot of years. And they did, a couple times they had to dig it up, and they kept. And I, I started to wonder as I was doing the book. I'm thinking, are they cleaning that? Were they, were they not cleaning that floor properly? Was was it dirt and grime that was causing the ice to be so dark and run down? So I was kind of wondering because you know, if you remember back, it was like mid, like twenty. 
12, 13, they dug up the whole floor in the summer one time because yep. they thought they, they thought the dirt was coming up through the floor and that was causing the problems with the ice. And then next year, same thing. Ice was just as bad. So, you know, just obviously the local rinks don't have the ability to clean with the same products as the NHL does. But, you know, it just kind of shows you what how impressive the NHL work is when you see how white that ice is in some spots. The owner of Holiday and Leisure was this guy named Glenn Grundich, and we called him the chief. Yep. yep, he called him the chief, and he's a really, really nice guy. Like, I learned a lot from him when I was – because I worked there when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever. And um, I remember when the Pepsi Center opened, or Northdown Center now, and uh, he called me into his office. He's like, Steve, I'm trying to run a business, Steve. God damn it. That's what he'd always say to you about everything. He's trying to run a business. So if he gave <laughs> – if he gave someone a roll of tape and he got mad – God damn it, Steve! We're trying to run a business out there. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Chief. He just spent six grand on equipment. I was on to throw in a roll of tape. All right, Steve. I'll trust your judgment. But he sent me to uh, the Northdown Center on a on a spy mission. You know, he wanted to, he wanted me to go there, get the brochures. You know, find out what's going on over there. <laughs> uh, he was a, he was a great guy. He died a few years ago. I. I think the rings are still in the family. Mark Grundich and Paul Grundich, I think, are in it too. But um, and then my my brother um, went to St. Francis, like one of the best St. Francis hockey players of all time. And then he coached the prep team for a few years after. So then he was at Leisure, kind of working with Paul on the ice and the locker room and all those kinds of things too. So Holiday and Leisure have always kind of been a part of my life, and I just love being at the rink as a player. And then like my brother is eleven years younger than me. He played D one at Yale, won the national championship at in Yale. And um, so kind of following through his career and stuff like that. But you, you said you're a big baseball guy. Last thing, I'll let you go on this. Big Blue Jays, 90s Blue Jays fan? or Blue Huge. Jays? Yeah. I, I'm a day one 1977 Blue Jays fan. I was at, I was at spring training that year. Yeah, I was a big Braves fan because um, of TBS. You know, I'm a TBS guy. Like you know, a lot of people. Yeah, like the, the only, Cubs fans and WGN. Yeah, the only team I could follow growing up every day, and baseball is an everyday thing, right, was the Braves. They were on TBS every day. Um, and I was kind of a wrestling guy growing up, too. I'd watch – WCW Saturday night at 6.05 and Braves baseball at 7.05. But the World Series, Braves and uh, Blue Jays, Otis Nixon, the bunt to end the World Series, an interesting decision by Bobby Cox there. Well, give me a, a memory or, or thought about the, the 90s Blue Jays and the two World Series uh, games there. Uh, just the fact that, you know, like I said, being a day one fan, just kind of growing up, going to Exhibition Stadium, um, sitting in the bleachers all the time, and just I was there when they won their first pennant in 1985, and against the they beat the Yankees that day, and just kind of it, it's different to be a sports fan with to a team, but to be since day one, like to, grow, right. I grew up with that team. Who they lose to in '85? The Royals was that the Royals year? That was the uh, game yeah. set. They lost in seven games. The Royals. Yeah, Jim, Jim the, Sundberg hit a wind wind aided triple off the wall, and then the Royals was, won the World Series. I remember. That. I can't remember what I ate for lunch some days, but I can remember Jim Sundberg. <laughs> Jim Sundberg. screwed them in 1985. <laughs> but yeah, those 92, 93 teams were insane, and just to, just to be like, part of growing up, and I was being in, in Toronto. Where we'd be at bars for the every game, going out, and just you know, it's just and then to have them, the Jays, come here with. A, Two years ago, now playing in Buffalo, that was right. incredible. Cool to be able to go that? to those games, and I, I live ten minutes from the ballpark, so I spent I spent way too much money that summer. But you know, after being locked up for two years before that, yeah, hell yeah, what, and what's it a, what's it. a lifetime opportunity? I mean, the freaking Yankees played here. You know what I mean? Like the New York Yankees played regular season games in Buffalo, New York. Not That's to take anything I think, against the Blue Jays. I mean, the Blue Jays are an amazing franchise as well. But the Yankees kind of are baseball in a way, right? And they played regular season games here. It's crazy to me still. 
Yeah, the only, the only disappointing thing for me being a Jays fan was that there was no I Jays we, fans that week. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't I actually did not go to the Yankees games for that reason alone. And then I, I actually happened to be at the last their last game against the Red Sox before they went back to Toronto. And I was I remember sitting in the stands with a buddy of mine, and I said, you know what? I'm glad they're going back to Toronto because this is this, as much as I love being able to go watch them play. It was just kind of weird that they were getting not. They didn't have full support in that, full, in that stadium. Yeah. For those two just, series, really. The rest they did, right? I mean, it was really just Yankees and Red Sox, I would say. Yeah, yeah. but the, the problem for them was the, the fans still couldn't get across the border to come from Toronto. So you're sure. still kind of relying on the local fans who, who maybe were Bisons fans who happened to be kind of they transitioned were in it into the moment, fans. But they weren't diehards, right? Yeah, yeah. and it yeah. was... Yeah, and there's a lot of complaining about the ticket prices and stuff like that. But it's like I said, it's it's once in a lifetime. Yeah, it was a unique. You know, thing. Pe- people will think back on it 20 years. Like you said, they saw Aaron. They were sitting 10 feet away from Aaron Judge or whoever was in town that day. That type of thing. So it's it just, it just it was really cool to be there and just. But for me, it was just special because, like I said, a lot of the, the two years before that, the two summers, the two summers we were locked up, and just to be able to do something and just kind of get out and. It happened to be my favorite team was in town, so that was incredible. It'd be like the rock music equivalent of Rush deciding to play 40 straight concerts at the town ballroom for some reason. <laughs> I'd be in for that, too. Yeah, I'd be all in for that. I mean, it'd be great. I went to the last nine Rush shows in the area. But um, listen, thank you so much for this. Again, the book is called The Science of Hockey, The Math, Technology, and Data Behind the Sport. Kevin Snow is the author, and um, it's good stuff that we talked about. And Kevin, fascinating guy. What a life. I could go on and on with you about, I could talk to you about WrestleMania 6 in Toronto. I was there for that. We could talk about the 94 playoffs, you know, Burray versus the the Maple Leafs, some good stuff there. Um, we could maybe get into more Canadian rock music, which I'm a huge fan of, um, from Triumph to the Matthew Good Band and everything in between. Uh, but I need to let you go back to the ice because I'm sure there's ice that needs to be chipped in the Elmwood area. There is plenty of it, but thanks for having me, Steve. And I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book. Yes, appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. thank kevin snow and i want to thank iman brennan both made their debuts today don't forget you can find this episode and every episode of the sportscasters podcast on our soundcloud page it's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters you can also find me follow me and communicate with me on twitter at sports underscore casters been there for years and years i'd love to connect with you there and chat you can email me if you prefer, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at sportscasters as well. All kinds of ways to connect. I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to speak with me, I'd be glad to do it. I've spoken with so many great listeners over the years, made great friends, even took a listener out to dinner on my honeymoon. Uh, shout out to my man in Vegas. Uh, don't forget the 24-inch podcast at 24-inch podcast on Twitter at 24-inch podcast at gmail.com for emails. You can find us 24 underscore inch underscore podcast on Instagram. 
the 24-inch podcast group page on Facebook as well. Uh, our last episode was about a episode of Superstars from 1990 and our new episode, which will debut a few days after this podcast does. Hopefully it'll be up Monday, maybe Tuesday. Uh, we will be looking at the Saturday Night's Main Event headline in 1990 uh, by Hulk Hogan and Leap and Lanny Poffo, or the genius at the time, who recently died. Rest in peace. I also want to mention my friends at the North-South Connection, uh, Justin and Aaron and Chad and all the good people there. Uh, they've added video and YouTube to their world, which I'm not crazy about, but it's working for them. And they may have me on to talk Seinfeld. Uh, they do a Seinfeld episode thing, and I threw my hat in the ring, and I think Justin's going to have me for that. And then they also have a series at North-South Connection. I don't know if it's video or just audio, this one. Uh, uh, chronological, they're going through all the WWE events, and I'm going to be on the next episode of that. It's monthly, uh, talking about a match from the um, Saturday Night's Main Event in June of 87. Uh, my match is Steamboat versus Hercules. I'm going to try to get Dave to do those with me, uh, too. So lots going on. Uh, sportscasters and 24-inch podcasts are midseason. And I'm going to try to do as many appearances on other shows as I can because I feel like nothing helps build the show more than being on other shows. Uh, and I love to do that. So if, you have, if you're listening, you have a podcast, you'd like to have me, reach out. I'd be more than glad to help you out. Okay. One last thing for me tonight. And I hope you don't take it as political, but to me, it's personal. Uh, my favorite author growing up is a guy named Roald Dahl, an English gentleman, uh, whose work is world famous. He's written books like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, The BFG, Matilda, The Witches, James and the Giant Peach, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Six More, The Twits. George's Marvelous Medicine, I could go on and on. His uh, bi biographies, uh, Boy, Going Solo, um, so many great books. And I read them all, and I've been reading them with Paula as well. Uh, Paula's got the box set, and it's a good thing we bought it when we did. Uh, because the word today, and this article that I'm going to quote from is from the dailywire.com, but it was everywhere, uh, and it's by Hank Berrien. And it says this, the publisher of Roald Dahl, the famous children's author who wrote, and I mentioned the books, has collaborated with the Roald Dahl Story Company, which manage, manages the works and trademarks. See, Dahl has been dead since like 1990. To make hundreds of alterations in order to not offend anyone in Dahl's original works. The Dahl Story Company admitted that they had worked with Inclusive Minds, which monitors children's literature for inclusion, diversity, and accessibility, says the Washington Post. The Telegraph illuminated some of the changes made to Dahl's books, and their report caused author Salman Rushdie himself, the subject of an Iran Iranian death warrant for his work, to tweet. Roald Dahl was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. Puffin Books and the Dahl Estates should be ashamed. The Dahl story argued that the changes were small and carefully considered, 
While insisted, they wanted to ensure that Dahl's wonderful stories and characters continue to be enjoyed by all children today. When publishing new print runs of books written years ago, it's not unusual to review the language used alongside updating other details, including a book's cover and page layout. Now, you might think, Steve, you're being ridiculous. I mean, if Roald Dahl used words like the N-word, you got to take those out. It's 2023. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking here. We're talking about the highly offensive word like mother or the even more offensive word father Um, or, well, let's give some examples. So in the twits, have you ever seen a woman with an uglier face than that became, have you ever seen anyone with an uglier face than that? So in that sentence, being ugly and calling someone ugly was not what was offensive. It was using the word woman that was offensive because that's not inclusive language. Because what is a woman, right? Oh, do you shut up, you old hag? Became, oh, do you shut up, you old crow? In the witches, they removed these sentences. I do not wish to speak badly about women. Most women are lovely. How horrid. Disgusting, my grandmother said. When an actress wears a wig, or if you or I wear were to wear a wig, we will be putting it on over our own hair. But a witch has to put it straight on to her naked scalp. I don't know why that was needed to be removed. In Matilda, mothers and fathers became parents. She went on olden day sailing strips with Joseph Conrad. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and to India with Rudyard Kipling. That was changed to. She went to 19th century estates with Jane Austen. She went to Africa with Ernest Hemingway and California with John Steinbeck. See, they didn't like the authors that Dow created. So they put it in new authors and new experiences from Matilda that I guess are more woke. And Charlie and the Chocolate, Fairy, the Chocolate Factory, this sentence was entirely removed. Mike TV himself had no less than 18 toy pistols of various sizes hanging from belts around his body. And every now and again, he would leap up into the air and fire off half a dozen rounds for one or the other. This sentence was removed. The Oompa Loompas spent every moment of their days climbing through the treetops. In the, word, in the BFG, the word black was consistently replaced with dark. And sentences such as, it was something black. It was something tall and black, which changes something very tall and very thin and very black. This all is incredibly absurd, and it comes with a warning, at least for me, and something I remember. As I look across from me, I see one of many towers I have in the house containing physical DVDs and physical CDs and physical movies and books. And I remember to myself, never get rid of these things. Because you cannot count on these streaming services to preserve them as they are. It's always going to be something that needs to be changed, that needs to be taken out, that needs to be edited. Right? It's in the word progressive. When we start taking the word women out and win that battle, we need to go on to something else. What's the next thing we can take out? What's the next thing we can change? What's the next thing we could make more reflective of our values? 
in 2023. And I promise you that the things that I grew up loving, the authors of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they'll never be able to live up to the standards of today. Nobody alive today who lived through the years 1940 to 2010 can say that they never made what would be considered a mistake in 2020 and on. Everyone now is judged to a standard that didn't exist. And works of art are being changed and sacrificed to reflect the values of today. And I'm not going to let that happen here. I'm raising a daughter here, and we read Roald Dahl books, and we're going to read the original books. And part of the charm of these books is people in them are mean. There's villains in the books. And when we read about the villains, we cheer for the heroes, for the faces, and it's okay. Everything's fine. Everyone wakes up the next day just fine. Paul is just fine. The little boy in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is fat for a reason. He's fat because they're making a point about gluttony. They're making Doll is making a point about how his greed and his gluttony and his constant eating of the chocolate is a horrible quality. There's no reason to soft pedal that. There's no reason to make the aunties not nicer. In James and the Giant Peach, they're mean people. They're the reason that this little boy needs to roll around on a giant peach and get the hell out of there. Roald Dahl was a genius. And I've learned in the last few years that personally, he wasn't as great of a guy as maybe we would hope. He had flaws. He was human. And maybe there's some things about me that if you knew in my personal life, you'd never listen to the show again because you just hate me so much. And maybe if your dad had a podcast and you found out some things about him you didn't know, you'd never listen to his show again. You wouldn't want him to be your dad again. You wouldn't love your grandma or your grandpa anymore. If you judge everyone by the standards of today, you're going to be disappointed when you found out that they lived to the standards of the day that they lived in. You're going to be disappointed that they wrote books with the acceptable terms of the time. You're going to be really disappointed to find out that they didn't know what was acceptable in 1970. They didn't know what would be acceptable in 2023 and 24. And if you love something, if you have a passion for a show or a movie or a book, buy it and keep it at your house. I love the A-Team. I own the season. I love the Sopranos. I own the seasons. I love the Wire. I own the seasons. I love the Dow books. I have them all. I love the Pearl Jam albums. I have them all. I love Guns N' Roses. I own it. You cannot leave it to the streaming services. You can't trust them to maintain art. They are going to retroactively decide what is acceptable in art made 50, 60, 70 years ago and hold it to an unrealistic standard. A standard, by the way, that nobody behind closed doors, could ever live up to. That's the thing when you really find out about this, right? The people who are screaming the loudest about people not using the right inclusive language are people that have not used the proper inclusive language themselves. We're creating impossible standards, and it's ridiculous. 
And I'm not going to put up with it, at least not in my life. That's all I can do. And I guess you have to make a decision too. Maybe for you it's okay. I'm a father, not a parent. I'm a father. That's what I want you to, to refer to me as. That's what my daughter thinks. She's a mother and a father, not two parents. We are parents, so that's okay. But we're mom and dad, and it's okay. James and the Giant Peach, apparently not okay for him to have a mom and dad or an aunt and an uncle. That stuff, we got to change that right away. That's what they're worried about in the publishing houses in New York and London today. It's sad, really. But what do you love the most? What piece of art? Maybe it's Dumb and Dumber. Maybe it's season one of Freaks and Geeks. Maybe it's the book 1984. Maybe it's the album 1984. Whatever it is, own it. Own it in physical form. Because someday, somebody woker than you is going to come up, come along, and decide that the thing you love doesn't live up to the standards that they've created for life in whatever year it is they're living. And if you think that it's going to stop or it's going to change or it's going to go back, it's not. It's going to keep going and going and going because it's in the word progressive. Those slippery slopes they say aren't things are. Everything's a slippery slope and it's going to keep going and it's going to keep going and it's coming for the thing you love the most. So own it. Own it.